In the name of Jesus. Amen. The fancy term is inattentional deafness. Inattentional deafness, uh, also known as the cocktail party effect. Uh, The idea is you're at a a cocktail party. Imagine a large room, uh, lots of folks, different little pockets of conversation going on. You're in one pocket on one side of the room, but somehow your name gets mentioned in a conversation on the other side of the room, and though you've heard nothing else of any of those other conversations, suddenly you hear your name. It's as if your brain has a way of turning down the volume on most things, but but turning up the volume, the sensitivity, and certain things so you hear them. Um, in my house, it, it works. It works something like this. Um, say I, from the, the the main level of the house, uh, pretty much yell. Um, to the top level of the house, to one particular member of the household, please brush your teeth. And when I get no response (laughs) and and get upset, this particular person says, "Uh, uh, but I didn't hear you. You didn't say anything. However, same person, same situation, separated by a level of, of home. If I should as much as whisper the words, ice cream, This particular person will uh, materialize (laughs) as if out of thin air in about half a second. Now, a psychologist would probably tell me that it's not quite accurate to say that in the former instance, he uh, was not listening, and in the the latter instance, he he was listening. They tell me, actually, he was taking it all in, but just like all of us do all the time, there's this filter installed, maybe even subconsciously, unconsciously, that filters some things out, brush your teeth, all those other conversations, and allows other things, your name, ice cream, to come through the filter. Inattentional, inintentional deafness. We hear the things uh, that, uh, and then filter out other things, the things we want to hear, expect to hear, are accustomed to hear, that gets through the filter. Our gospel lesson for today. I think we could make a pretty good case that it is a pretty significant instance of inattentional deafness that explains a rather stark non sequitur going on there in Mark chapter 10. Perhaps you caught it. Jesus on the Jerusalem road. Within within a week, he himself will be hanging on the cross and to his disciples. Now actually for a third time, he spills the beans. We're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to sinful men. I'll be condemned to death. Uh, I'll be mocked and spit on and flogged. I'll be killed and I'll rise again. Response? Jesus. Um, we've been thinking about Jesus, Inc. And we think you got a great thing going here. You're a great front man. We love your vision, but we're ready to take it to the next level. And James and John here, the sons and thunder, we are the ones to do it. Make us the left-hand man, the right-hand man, CFO, COO. Make us in charge and man what we could do. How do you think that will go, boss? To which the savvy reader might say, Uh, Pretty much the same thing that a savvy Jesus did say. (laughs) Did you not hear what I just said? Answer, probably not. (laughs) Why? 
Same reason that that one particular member of my household can uh, filter out a pretty much bullhorned brush your teeth, but somehow let through a whispered ice cream inattentional deafness. Because they did not want to hear it, they did not expect to hear it, so they did not hear it. It being a very different vision for Jesus, Inc., what Jesus is all about, than they had in mind. Inattentional deafness. So set on being in charge, so set on racing to the, the top dog position, so fixated on their upward mobility, they were almost literally unable to hear Jesus and what he was all about, and as a consequence, what they might be about with him. Those disciples, right? I mean, where in the world did Jesus ever find a bunch of jokers like that? I wonder what it is that I am filtering out. Uh, To what are you inattentionally deaf? Uh, Because I'm pretty sure that not much has changed from that Jerusalem road until now in terms of uh, what we hear and don't hear in terms of our jonesing to be in charge and top dog and prestigious and upwardly mobile and all that, I imagine it's likely quite a bit. In terms of the upward mobility kind of charge, I wonder how often it is, say when uh, someone is offered the, the big promotion. I wonder how often it is, even amongst Christians, that uh, it is heard, let alone entertained, the possibility that, you know what, maybe that wouldn't be the best thing for the marriage or for my children. Or maybe that would make it harder for me to, to find good opportunities to volunteer or to be active in the church. So you know what, I think we're fine. We've got enough. We're just going to stay put. I wonder how often a message like that even makes it through. Not very often, I would guess, especially when the name of the game is in charge up the totem pole. Or maybe this. And this one, this one is me, certainly. What gets filtered out goes unheard by the need to win every argument kind of be in charge, which is a very specific kind of being in charge. I was reading a book recently called Think Again, Uh, The subtitle is The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Uh, It's more or less uh, a a book about the importance of having the ability and the humility to think again and and change your mind, even about not insignificant things, and about how you might go about helping others to do the same. And in that that second part, in the helping others, there's a line in one of the chapters that says, the goal isn't to be right and tell people what to do, It's to help them break out of overconfidence cycles and see new possibilities. Uh, That's not that hugely important. Basically, um, no one likes to be told that they're an idiot, so don't do that. But in the margin, in the margin next to, quote, the goal isn't to tell people what to do, I wrote, but it's so much fun. (laughs) It is. I'm right. You're wrong. Win for me. Because it's so much fun. But then here's the question. 
At what cost? (laughs) At what cost comes the winning every argument? At the cost of missing out on what and on whom? I don't suppose any of us can predict what will be on our minds and on our lips as we're taking our last breaths, but I sure hope it's not. I wish I had been promoted more and been in charge of more stuff. If the person to whom you're speaking is your spouse or someone else whom you love dearly, I really hope that your last words to them are not, well, dear, we really had a great run. My only regret is that I didn't win more of the arguments we had. So much missed, so much lost, so so much and so many filtered out when we take our place oh so easily alongside James and John and the gang, looking to take the next step up the ladder, be in charge of more foolishly, foolish because we know it never actually works, foolishly thinking that another step up the ladder, winning another argument, being in charge of a little bit more, will finally satisfy Foolish because that's Jesus' job. It's Jesus' job to be in charge. In fact, I want you to hold on to that phrase, in charge, because at least once we've done a little etymological magic, it is the perfect way to describe who and what Jesus is. See that word charge? Uh, It it literally, a long time ago anyway, uh, meant uh, burden. Or load. It's related to our word cargo. You can see it right in there. The ch er g of charge is the same k er g of cargo. Same thing. So that the idea was if you are in charge of something, it's not that you're necessarily the top dog. If you are in charge, it means you're the one who has the cargo, who bears the burden, who lifts the load. And what phrase could be more appropriate for describing Jesus than that kind of being in charge, carrying the cargo? What could be more uh, significant than to describe the one who came not to serve and to climb the ladder, but to be served and climb the cross and give his life as a ransom for you and me and for the whole world than the one who is in charge, bears the burden, lifts the load, carries the cargo? He is the one who is not in charge by climbing up the ladder to the top, but by coming all the way down to the very bottom. Not to the one who maybe like me wants to race to the top to tell you all what to do, but the one who races to the very bottom simply to sing, I love you. To bear the burden, lift the load, carry the cargo. He's the one who bears the burden of your sins, takes charge of your iniquities, The one who comes, who came to gather up all your worst and the worst of the whole world to the cross and say, I will bear these now. They are no longer yours. You're not in charge of them. They cannot condemn you. They cannot define you, for I've answered for them all. The one who carries the cargo, maybe it's the cargo of guilt and shame, which is perhaps the hardest thing to lay down and let him have. Maybe mostly the guilt and shame that comes upon us when we reflect upon all the things and people that we have filtered out in our race to be in charge ourselves. He carries that cargo. He lifts the load. He he lifts the load that comes in our thinking, 
probably because it's screamed at us in a thousand ways a day by a thousand different people and different things, lifts the load of our thinking we have to be a big deal, that we have to be the top dog, that we have to be in control, be the winner, be loved or count. Jesus lifts that load. You know, in, in thinking of Jesus being in charge, related to the of cargo, the one who carries. I couldn't but help but think of a, a member of uh, one of my former congregations up in New England, um, uh, Carl is his name. I may have talked about Carl before. He's a great guy. Um, proud, kind of rough and burly fellow. Um, he loved the Lord, loved his family, uh, and the Boston Red Sox. And, and probably not in that order. <laughs> enough said. I didn't meet Carl till he was in his early 80s when I got to the church. I can't remember, maybe I never knew exactly what he, he did in life, but he was, he was had done well for himself. You could see he was kind of the guy who's, who was probably in charge of uh, a fair bit of stuff, once upon a time anyway. Anyway, a couple of years after I got there, Carl, uh, he got cancer. Um, rough and burly, kind of turned uh, weak and feeble, as cancer does, uh, which was hard in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, it was extra hard even in terms of church because you see this church that, that I served, the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer, it's a beautiful little sanctuary. Uh, what you may think of is gleaming white church in, in New England, kind of an a ocean town. Um, but unfortunately, the only way into this church, you had to go up at least six or eight steps. There's no other way in. There's no ramp. There's no, no elevator, lift, or anything like that. Um, which is uh, a challenge for everyone. The average age of the church was about 70. I was like, the youth group was 60, so they were older. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's an extra challenge uh, when you're 82 and you're weak and feeble from, from cancer. So for, for a while, probably for a few months, Carl, Carl just didn't come to church with his, his wife, Tina, and I understood um, the Roy wasn't any way in. Uh, until one Sunday, he showed up um, with his wife, Tina, in his wheelchair, the bottom of the stairs there, and Carl wasn't, he wasn't a small man. And I said, it's good to see you, Carl. Um, how are we going to get you into church? And he looked at me and he said, you're going to carry me. <laughs> uh, and since I was the youngest member of the congregation, um, except for my children, by at least 30 years, I didn't want to ask any assistance and have more injuries. So that's what I did. I got behind Carl hoisted him up underneath the arms and very clumsily, thank God he didn't drop him, you know, carried him up the stairs, deposited him in the pew, carried him back down the stairs after the service, which we did for six or eight weeks until, until Carl died. And we had a conversation. I can't remember exactly how it went, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it in kind of in terms I've been using this, in this sermon, asking Carl, you know, what, what changed? You were away for a few months, and then suddenly you came back there and you, you, know, you had me carry you up the stairs. And it wasn't exactly this, but again, this is the way I, I remember it and paraphrase it in terms of my language. So that's something the facts is, you know, Pastor, the very first time I came into this church, I was cargo. I was carried. Carried in the arms of my mother as she brought me to the baptismal font. And knowing what was in store for him, he said, within a couple of months, I'll be cargo again. When six men carry me in and then carry me back out and deposit me in my resting place. If I was cargo the first day I came in, and I'm going to be cargo on the last day when I go out, he said, I might as well be cargo now <laughs> and let you carry me in. 
until Jesus carries me home. I'll never forget that. It is very likely the most significant thing I will ever do as a pastor. And I don't mean that facetiously. (laughs) I'm quite certain it's the most Jesus-like I've ever been. (laughs) Because I literally got to carry a sinner into the house of his father. What a gift. What a gift for Carl. What a gift more for me. To be reminded through that that I am Carl. And that you are too. You are Jesus' cargo. Feel it or not, he carries you in here. Actually carries you everywhere. Every week. Because Jesus is in charge. So you don't have to be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.